Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 21, we are going to be finishing chapter 21 today. We're going to be starting at verse, let me just find it here, 18. Continuing this parable of the sword, the word of the Lord came to me again. As for you, son of man, son of Adam, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come. Both of them shall come from the same land and make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to the city. Mark a way for the sword to come to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah into Jerusalem the fortified. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. He looks at the liver into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth with murder, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up mounds, to build siege towers. But to them it will seem like a false divination. They have sworn solemn oaths, but he brings their guilt to remembrance that they may be taken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your guilt to be remembered, in that your transgressions are uncovered, so that in all your deeds your sins appear, because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. And you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown, things shall not remain as they are, exalt that which is low, and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites, concerning their reproach. Say, a sword, a sword is drawn for slaughter. It is polished to consume and to flash like lightning. While they see for you, for you false visions, while they divine lies for you, to place on to place you on the necks of the profane wicked whose day has come the time of their final punishment return to its sheath in the place where you were created in the land of your origin i will judge you and i will pour out my indignation upon you i will blow upon you with the fire of my wrath and i will deliver you into the hands of brutish men skillful to destroy you shall be fuel for the fire your blood shall be in the midst of the land you shall be no more remembered for i yahweh have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. And so again we say, thanks be to God. I had the pleasure uh, this week of uh, sparking some discussion among some friends on Facebook about the, the multiverse in comic book movies and the way that idea has come to us. And uh, part, part of the reason there was because I was interested in to see how that concept is developed in in uh, in these movies i really enjoy superhero movies uh I, I i like a lot of the marvel movies i like the nolan batman trilogy if you're familiar with that um and uh, i should say i like the marvel movies until they became total absolute garbage uh which was pretty recent i'll let you figure out where to draw that line uh but let's say the movie with the the word end in the title should have been the end but superhero movies have enjoyed a big boom in the last 20 or so years. And I think part of the reason is that we all have a longing for justice. 
but it's more than that. It's that we all would really like a really strong person to hurry up and deliver us to set the world free, to set the world right, I should say, and to punish all the evildoers and to deal that out quickly. Christianity has always worshipped a God who exalts goodness and virtue and who punishes and destroys evil, but but doesn't do so according to our timetable. Uh, Indeed, He does so over the long arc of history. And so to be God's people has always meant to be called to be patient, to be called to be faithful in the land and in the time that you've been given. The terror of Ezekiel, of course, is that God's own people have become the evil ones who are opposed to him. We saw a couple of weeks ago a movement, uh, and just before chapter 21 you had this parable of the, the, the flame and the fire that burns down the forest, and then we move from that to a parable of the sword, both communicating the same thing or the same things about judgment. What we discover in today's passage is that there will be a human agency to this sword and to the deliverance of this judgment on Jerusalem, and as we discovered starting in verse 28, to, uh, uh, to, to nations outside Jerusalem as well. So, namely, who I'm talking about is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is the one who is wielding this sword, which itself is really remarkable. God is actually saying, I'm going to place my sword of judgment into the hands of a pagan king. Okay? There's a lesson for us there that God is quite willing to work through rebellious, sinful unbelieving men and even rebellious, sinful, unbelieving leaders. So don't assume that just because Nebuchadnezzar here is the instrument of God's judgment that that says anything pleasant or good or virtuous about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was lost as a goat, okay? And so there was nothing about him that was, that, that was delighting in the Lord, and yet God is calling him out, appointing him to do this work. And so the prophet Ezekiel is told to mark out a fork in the road with a signpost coming from Babylon, right? So you want to picture a road that, I mean, if you were looking at it from above, goes in three directions. One of them to Babylon, that's the direction from which people are coming. They arrive at the fork in the road, okay, and have to choose between two directions. So this is in verse 19. As for you, son of man, mark two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to come, both of them shall come from the same land. Make a signpost. Make it at the head of the way to a city. Okay? So one way uh, is in verse 20, we're told. One way is to Rabbah, that's the capital of the Ammonites. Uh, And the other way is to Jerusalem, of course, the capital city of Judah. Jerusalem, the fortified, which is a bit of a Oh, kind of a, an ironic phrasing because very soon what's going to happen is the city's going to be put under siege and taken out, not so fortified anymore. Ezekiel is to act out the forces of the king of Babylon coming to this fork in the road, this parting of the ways, and then deciding which direction to go. To which of these rebellious cities should he go? Right, And they're both rebellious. It's just... One of them, you might say, almost, one of them should know better, namely Israel, because they have the law and the revelation of God. Right? As far as the Ammonites go, they've been as evil as ever all the time. 
Uh, but Ezekiel then pictures the king using all the pagan means of decision-making. Verse 21, For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows, consults the teraphim, looks at the liver. Sounds really weird. Let's go over that briefly. Drawing arrows from the quiver, the the easiest way to explain that in in a decision-making way, we would compare that to like drawing straws, okay? So if you think about drawing straws and what's done with that, something similar was done with arrows from a quiver to decide which way are we going to go. Consulting of the teraphim, in other words, the household gods, okay? You might be familiar with that term and its use in the Old Testament. Uh, Consulting the household gods, consulting the, uh, the, the gods that different families worshipped and asking them what to do and then examining the liver of a sacrificial animal. Uh, Again, best way to sum this up perhaps is dropping it down and seeing which way it pointed. Okay, Uh, And so all these, these were three different means of, of deducing what the will of the gods was. And each of these actions represented different religious traditions. It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar is trying to cover all his bases, religiously speaking. Okay? What matters is, and what is kind of weird, is that God lets it work. Okay? So yes, these are, this is like a, a pagan way of deducing divine will. God allows it to lead Nebuchadnezzar to the correct, that is God's correct answer. Now, nowhere are we told to imitate this. I think a parallel might be... Uh, probably Babylonian pagan stargazers and astrologers finding their way to the Christ child by way of their uh, uh, Babylonian pagan arts. Uh, and so that, that might be a way, to, of, uh, a way to compare these two things. But the Lord in His providence is allowing this to work. Israel had pursued these idolatries and these false gods And so Yahweh allows those very pagan practices to be the thing that brings about their doom. In this way, Nebuchadnezzar is acting as a kind of prosecutor. And in this way, their judgment is made obvious and made public. Verse 24 uh, talks about, uh, Therefore, this says the Lord, because you have made your guilt to be remembered. Probably a better translation is you've made it obvious You've made it public in in that sense. You've made it memorable. And then the rest of the context supports that. So you made your guilt to be remembered in that your transgressions are uncovered, public. Everyone can see them. So that in all your deeds, your sins appear public, obvious. Now everyone can see them. Because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. This punishment comes not only to the people of Judah, but to their king, King Zedekiah who will be stripped of uh, his royal insignia, his royal robes. Basically, this is verse 26, uh, where we read, Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban, take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. You're not the king anymore. Exalt that which is low. Bring low that which is exalted. So the punishment comes not only to the people of Judah, but to King Zedekiah. And this verse tells us that the Lord is to put it mildly, reordering Israelite society, Judaic society. He is exalting the lowly and bringing down the exalted. And this is always what our God does. 
in the providence of our God, the way down is up, right? The way to the front of the line is to be at the back and so on. He who is your servant shall be your, your, your leader or master, things like this. That, that the way of the cross is always the way you did not expect. Indeed, the cross itself is not what we would have expected as God's way to save us. And then even beyond that, the way that God conquers the world is by putting that message on the lips of a few fishermen and expecting them to go and conquer the world. And they did. And so this is always what our God does. He brings down the high things and makes them lowly. He knocks down proud men and He exalts things that are low. And so God, what what we see in this text, one way I want to put it to you, is that God is the, you might say the, this is not the best analogy, the, the military general of history. In other words, He's doing the directing and the deploying. History is not without a sovereign God. And so history, in fact, is the record of God's deployment and what He's done. There is one to whom a judgment belongs, and there is one to whom judgment is coming. So verse 27, A ruin, a ruin I will make of it. This also shall not be until He comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to Him. Okay, so these, these words are, uh, Nebuchadnezzar here is the referent that he's the one who's coming to bring Israel's judgment about. And he is so because God makes him so. This is true again of, of the king of Babylon. It's also true of uh, King Cyrus uh, being called God's anointed one in Isaiah 45. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus lost as a goat. Nothing admirable, admirable about his piety or his worship. But God calls him my anointed one. In other words, the one I've set aside to, to, to accomplish my purposes. And so this remains true of politics in our day that God appoints uh, leaders sometimes to be instruments of judgment on a people. You're not stupid. I don't have to spell it out any clearer than that, I hope. Uh, and so this is, what, this is what the Lord does very often in His providence. That when, uh, to quote John Calvin, when God wants to punish a people, he gives them wicked leaders. Um, And so, uh, this does not make us lazy, by the way. This knowledge that God is in control of all of history, that God is moving all things according to his purpose, does not make us lazy. Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid observes the following. He says, one day our works will be tested by fire as believers. And much of what we spend our time on is far from fireproof. We fill our lives with the trivial, passing our time instead of spending it, living alongside people aimlessly instead of living with them purposefully. Even those closest to us may hardly be affected by the ideas that we claim are closest to our hearts. I almost want to just give the benediction at that point. I, I don't know if I'm going to do better than that quotation. And I, I, I made a note on my desk to just like put it up on Facebook at the end of the service today because I want you to keep chewing on it. Even those closest to us may hardly be affected by the ideas we claim are closest to our hearts. So the fact of sovereignty calls us into action. It reveals inaction as a pathetically weak attempt to defend spiritual laziness. Let me say that again. The fact of God's sovereignty, 
that God is in control of all things, that liberates us and frees us to act. And wherever there's inaction, what we reveal there is a pathetic attempt to defend spiritual laziness. Well, if God's in control of everything, then it doesn't matter what I do, right? Okay, so what, what the Lord's sovereignty, what His commands in Scripture reveal, is that that is merely an attempt to defend laziness, and a rather pathetic one at that. So after this, those who wielded the sword will themselves be judged. This is so important. Chapter 21, verse 30, is that, is that in there? It should be, but I can't remember if I put it in there, in the list. No? No, okay. So I'll just read it to you, no problem. Return, uh, return to its sheath, a reference to the sword. Return to its sheath. In the place where you were created, in the land of your origin, I will judge you. That's God addressing the one who he just said would be his instrument of judgment. Babylon is not above God or independent of God. In the, and in this case, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is God's tool, God's anointed one, God's uh, instrument of judgment. And so I think it is that the question that haunts us when we read a text like this, or just, I mean, even if we're not reading a text like this, a question that often confronts Christians in evangelistic scenarios, in apologetic scenarios, and just generally speaking in times that are really difficult and fraught with pain, is where is the God of justice? So Ezekiel gives to us a God of justice who makes sure that evil doesn't go unanswered. That a rejection and mockery of the only thing that that truly matters in the universe, God Himself, doesn't remain unanswered. And yet, I think it is still a question that bothers us, where is the God of justice, when, when we become convinced it gets really hard to see Him. When 61 million babies have been murdered since Roe v. Wade, we ask where the God of justice is. When children are killed by stray bullets, as happened a few weeks back, we ask where the God of justice is. When we hear about people being kidnapped and mistreated, we ask where the God of justice is. Now, we all have this in common. by, By we all, I mean Christian non-Christian, religious, irreligious, theistic, atheistic, we have this in common that we rage at injustice and evil in our own world, even just in our own parish and city. We believe that God is sovereign, and we also know that that sovereignty calls us to action and reveals inaction as a pathetic attempt to defend our laziness. Yes, if you want proof that you want to see justice in the world, and that your neighbors do as well, I bring you back to the popularity of superhero movies, even when they're garbage, they're still making money. And so why? Why do, you, you know, why, why do, why do we like superhero movies? Because, again, the idea of that strong individual who establishes justice and effectively, efficiently, quickly dispenses with the baddies, like, who doesn't want that? The question I want you to think about today and in the next few days this week is if, you're, if all of your secrets were known, would you be worth saving? 
I'm not talking about the image you carefully maintain. I'm talking about if a Batman or a Superman had total and perfect knowledge of everything you've ever done and said, would you be seen as the victim or as the villain? And if you were to imagine yourself as the villain in whatever, in the Batman movie, then you start to get a sense of the terror of Judah's situation, a little bit of a little tiny bit of it. God had put a sword in Nebuchadnezzar's hands, and Nebuchadnezzar was coming to be God's judgment. And so everyone, whether or not you believe there's a God, everyone has an an internal desire for justice to fall on evildoers and for blessing and goodness to fall on the righteous. It's just a question of which standard you're using to determine who is evil and who is righteous. And I would ask, where did you get that standard from? Did you make it up? All right. Who made you the judge? We all want accounts settled. We all want justice to reign. We just don't want to be the ones under the examination. Just like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, we are all tempted to say to ourselves, everything is fine, everything is fine, everything is really fine. That was the problem in Jerusalem. Divine judgment in hell are not pleasant things to talk about. I remember hearing a, a, a Christian apologist, a fellow, his, his name is James White. This fellow's made his life out of like doing apologetics. Um, that's, that's been his whole pursuit and ministry and um, reading a book right now uh, with a few others called uh, The Forgotten Trinity. Very good stuff. Uh, and uh, so, so, so this guy's made his life out of uh, doing apologetics, defending the Bible, defending the faith, etc., and uh, he was, recently, within the last couple of years, he was invited um, or asked, maybe it was a request, I, I don't really know the details, but to, to do a debate about like the existence of hell and eternal punishment. And his first reaction was like, who wants to be the apologist for hell? <laughs> like, of all that I'd like to do with my time, that's not high on the list, and can you blame the guy? The, uh, divine judgment and hell are not pleasant things to talk about. I think C.S. Lewis put it perfectly, though, when he said this. He said, In all our discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, nor of our friends, since both these disturb the reason, but of ourselves. This doctrine is not about your wife or your son, nor about Nero, the Roman emperor, Or Judas Iscariot. It is about you and me. So how do we deal then with images of fire and sword from the one who must judge righteously? Well, you might remember that fire and sword going together as images of judgment is very familiar biblically. Ezekiel didn't make it up. In Genesis 3.24 The cherubim are a sign to guard the entrance to Eden as a mark of judgment and do so with a flaming sword. We have already referenced last week and the week before Deuteronomy 32.41 which speaks of God's flashing and sharpened sword 
pointed at his enemies, at his adversaries. These images of judgment can also, uh, I mean, in Ezekiel, indeed they do, uh, come about to condemn Israel. Like, again, we're not supposed to be the adversaries. But since they have rebelled against God and rejected Him, that is what they are. In 1 Chronicles 21, David sees an angel with a sword drawn over Jerusalem. And it drives him to repentance, to plead for God's mercy. Clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. I don't have it on the, on the screen, but uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 11, chapter 16, are also two occasions where God's people rebel against Him, and they are met with consuming fire. Sword, swords and fire. Again, things that are already present in the history of God's people. What all of these images have in common with each other and in the text in Ezekiel is that they are never uh, uh, in independent autonomous entities. Like the, the, the fire doesn't show up apart from God's direction. The sword doesn't have a mind of its own. They are images of God's action and of God's judgment. He's the one who wields them. This is not unique to the Old Testament, by the way. In the Gospels, we learn that Jesus describes His own ministry, and indeed Himself, as one who came not to bring peace, but a sword. Right? Came not to bring peace, but a sword. And then, very interestingly, I just found this out this week, and kind of blew my mind a little bit. The parallel text in Luke's Gospel In other words, when Jesus is saying the same thing, when He says it in Luke, He says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it was already kindled. So these two images, again, are in fact constantly going hand in hand in Scripture. Part of Jesus' mission, in fact, a defining aspect of it, was to bring righteous judgment to sin, to say this indeed is sin. It's what he was doing with the Pharisees, right? It is, it is not his primary mission. It's part of his mission. But as we heard in the assurance of pardon, right? Did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That was Jesus's primary mission because it is our God's way to always move first toward us in mercy. And so how can we today survive the sword of the Lord, survive the refining and purging fire? How can fire and sword come and not utterly destroy us? The answer that you have, Christian, the only hope that you have in life and death is that the sword and the fire has already fallen on your Savior. All the heat of God's fire has been poured out on Jesus. The sword has already been been unsheathed on Jesus the Son, and it has ultimately and finally been sheathed, been put away in His body on the cross so that it cannot harm His people ever again. Almost like the sword in the stone, right? Except Jesus' body is the stone, and for Christians, the sword can never be removed. God has raised His sword of judgment and brought it down on the shepherd. And it is His death that allows us to draw near to the perfect God of justice and not be destroyed. Those who are outside of Christ are left exposed to that same judgment. 
which is why we are constantly pleading with all who will listen to come and know Jesus Christ. To bow the knee before Him. To confess Him as Lord. To repent of sin and to hate your sin. One thing of which we can be certain, the purifying fire of God's judgment and the flashing sword will come on the last day. The fire will burn away all the impurities, leaving behind only that which is of eternal value. The sword will cut away all impurities as well as cut off the impure. And what will be left behind will be the immortal covenant people of God ready to serve Him forever. So you see, for all of our talk about the problem of evil, a philosophical conversation, sometimes we lack the courage to be honest and admit that talking on and on about the problem of evil out there is really a smokescreen because I don't want to address the evil in here. This is what the Lord does. Rather than give us a lot of details, all the details to answer all of the questions that we have about evil, rather than giving you all the details to understand the why behind whatever the tragedy is or whatever the affliction is that you're bearing in your life, rather than answer all of the details that you might want to have, He brings home the question to each person, what is the answer to the evil in your heart that's killing you? What is the answer to the lack of justice and yeah, to the injustice in your own actions? And we are a people obsessed with being on the right side of history. You've probably heard that language before. We like the idea (laughs) because we are in love with our own works and we have a sense that right side of history is something we just might be able to pull off, right? With enough, enough work and careful discernment. And if morality is a matter of being on the right side of history, let's be honest, in most issues, you got a 50-50 shot, right? Uh, Maybe sometimes there's a third one in there, but but it really does kind of narrow the options as to what you have to accomplish and be and say and do in order to be good. And if I think I'm on the right side of history, this allows me, no, wait, it forces me to be really proud of that and to hate my neighbor who's on the wrong side of history. This is the reality of the human heart. We are always looking for carefully constructed, carefully designed excuses to hate our neighbors. There's this great bit, if you've never read the Screwtape letters, there's this great bit where Screwtape just says, like, he just wants them to love each other. Like these, these human beings. Their creator. All he wants them to do is love each other. It's our job, the job of the demonic hordes, to make sure they take that love and turn it into competition and distrust of each other. Ezekiel and indeed all the prophets and the apostles tell you, never mind who's on the right side of history, set that idolatrous and egotistical obsession aside and ask yourself if you are on the right side of Almighty God. This is the question we have to face. Part of the point of Ezekiel 21 that all Israel had to face, including the king and the royalty and so on, you saw that in the text, no one's left out. And so men as selfish and prideful sinners have to face this question. Women as selfish and prideful sinners have to face this question. Children who were born into this world sinning 
must face the question. Kids, you do not have to be a grown-up to know what it's like to want God's rules to apply to everyone except you. You do not have to be a grown-up to get that. Because you know that when you've been caught in some kind of wrong, you are tempted to lie. And you're tempted to cover up your sin. And you're tempted to blame somebody else, like a brother or sister, for example, for what you did. You don't have to be a grown-up to understand that we are always tempted to cover up for ourselves, to design a story that makes us look good or at least just okay, and blame everybody else for our problems. So what is the answer to the evil that lies inside your own heart? The Christian's answer is to point to the cross. There for all time, the fire and the sword that you deserved was taken by Jesus Christ, God's only Son. This is God's solution to the problem of evil. It is not God's solution to the problem of evil to give you an explanation for every tragedy and affliction that confronts your heart. It is God's way to show you what your sin deserves and by extension, by, by, by virtue of the resurrection of the Son of God, to point to every evil and affliction and say, temporary. This too will be made right. This too will be made right. This is the answer that Christianity, and indeed that God Almighty Himself gives you. God's solution is that God the Son was bruised for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities. Every secret sin, every shameful internet history, every fit of rage, every proud despising of your neighbor, every cold word to your wife, every disrespectful word to your husband, every selfish disobedience of your parents, every lie to get you out of trouble. Jesus Christ absorbed it all so that you can look to the last day without fear. Can you even imagine getting summoned to court, right? Getting summoned to court here in Rapids Parish, walking into the courtroom, and you know you did it, and you know you're guilty, and you walk in fearless? Of course not. You walk in shaking. To walk before a judgment seat without fear when you're guilty. The Lord Jesus gives you peace by forgiving your sins so that you can be called clean today and tomorrow and next week and on the very last day come before the throne without fear. In the name of Jesus, Amen. And so our Father, as we draw near to that day, encourage our hearts with the only hope that we have in life and death, with the great confession whereby we join the great cloud of witnesses continuing to confess all the goodness of our God and all that is in God. We thank you, Lord, for for the testimony of your judgment, for the reminder that you take the destructive, ugly, 
horrific power of sin so much more seriously than we do. And so have mercy on us as we seek to be a people who see our sin rightly and react to it rightly. Be our guardian and defender, for we are weak and helpless. Our need is great, Lord. Strengthen us for your service as we, your needy people, gather again at your table. So be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.